Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers will discuss the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Before we jump in, we wanted to remind you to sign up for our newsletter in Medias Race. There's a link down there in the show notes for you, and when you sign up, we'll send you a free ebook on Pado Communion by Peter Lightheart. Also, Theopolitan Liturgy, written by Peter Lightheart, was just released, and there's a link down there in the show notes for you if you'd like to purchase the book. With that, we hope that you enjoy this conversation over this passage, and here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers discussing the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2. Uh, we have been uh, going through a series in the early chapters of the Gospel of Luke during Advent. These are the chapters of Luke that talk about the annunciations of the birth of John and Jesus, the birth of John and Jesus, uh, and their classic Christ- Advent and Christmas texts. And uh, so we're in the middle of that series, and we've come to the beginning of Luke chapter 2, which is the account of the birth of Jesus. But I think it, I'd want to put this into context before we look at the passage in detail. We've had this parallel that we've noted between John and Jesus, and broadly speaking, we've had a sequence of an annunciation, that's the annunciation about John's birth to Zechariah, then another annunciation, annunciation of the birth of Jesus to Mary. Then we had a brief birth account, but then the circumcision of John is given a lot of attention at the end of chapter one. And then we have the birth of Jesus in chapter two. So we have Annunciation, Annunciation, Birth, Birth, and then other kinds of things going on, as we'll see next episode in the rest of chapter two. But uh, I think it's it's also interesting to see that the story of Jesus' birth, really the, the accent in the way Luke tells the story, the accent is really elsewhere than the birth itself. Um, you've got a couple of verses about Jesus giving birth. Not I don't want to minimize the incarnation at all, but uh, the way Luke tells the story, uh, it's verses six and seven of chapter two. While they were in Bethlehem, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. She gave birth to a firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. That's it. That's all we know about the actual birth story. Uh, a lot of uh, legends and stories have risen up around that. And people have imagined different things for the for the setting of the birth and that kind of thing. Why there, why there was no room in the end and so on. But the accent really is on the annunciation of this event to the shepherds. So in some ways, what we have in the beginning of chapter two is yet another annunciation scene. We had the annunciation to Zacharias about John, annunciation to Mary about Jesus, and now we've got this more this uh, more public, broader annunciation. Again, we have an angel appear. We again have people react with fear, as Zacharias and Mary did. We have an angel say, "Don't be afraid," as Gabriel said to both of those, uh, to both Zacharias and Mary. Uh, and then once the announce- announcement is made, then there's a then there's a, uh, they react with joy. So we, the story is basically parallel to the other enunciation scenes. And one of the things that is an interesting twist on that is the way those, the enunciation scenes, scenes go into naming scenes, as it were. That's with, uh, with John, the birth scene uh, is uh, largely a, uh, it's a, it's a circumcision scene, but also a naming scene for John. Uh, and we have that also in the enunciation of the shepherds, uh, but they don't use, his given name, Jesus, they call him Christ the Lord uh, in verse 11. 
the first time that that title Christ is used. So they announced that the Messiah has come. And just trying to highlight the parallel between this scene, which we think of as the birth narrative, and it is, uh, and the Annunciation scenes. We have to see that this is the birth is itself part of an, uh, an announcement to the shepherds who are then going to proclaim it and announce it to still other people. It is rather striking that um, the birth is portrayed in rather simple terms. And as you said earlier, uh, there's not a lot of uh, craziness going on. There's simply Mary and Joseph delivering a child and laying him in a manger, and that's it. But it's it's real. It rings true. Um, it's not um, uh, elaborated on, or I, I guess I should say, it's not um, it's not overdone. And it happens in time in history. Uh, at a certain date, when Caesar Augustus sent out a decree that all the world should be registered, and it's even uh, situated within the um, time of Quirinius, the governor of Syria, very, very, um, very strong emphasis on this happened in space, in time, in history. You'd almost think, although there's no Gnostic gospels at this time, you'd almost think that it was written in an anti-Gnostic way to show how Jesus came into the real world. And, and didn't, you know, hover down out of the sky in some weird, strange way um, without any contact with uh, the world as it is. And just on the on the simplicity of the birth, uh, I'm reminded of the, uh, there's a the Lutheran satire group that does YouTube videos, has a great YouTube video <laughs> where they have Martin Luther debating with a couple of English carol writers about what they should include in Christmas carols. And the English carol writers want to include the snow and the, and the animals and all this stuff that's not actually in the text. <laughs> and Luther keeps bringing him back. No, no, the important thing is the incarnation of the Word of God. Um, it's, amusing little, it's an amusing little Christmas video, if you want to say it. I'm sorry, Alistair, I didn't mean to interrupt. It also sets the stage upon which Christ is coming. So you have these more out-of-the-way places and this obscure um, woman um, young woman who has this annunciation that a child will be born to her earlier on. But now you have the stage of the empire, the stage of its different provinces, and this annunciation of the birth of a son of David um, in David's city, um, that he's going to be the Messiah, the Lord. And all of this, I think, is charged in many ways with a royal announcement. This is a king who's going to take his place among all the other emperors and rulers and kings of the nations. And the beginning of the chapter there is not incidental in setting this against the frame of a form of history that's measured by, times are measured by the years of particular rulers. They're the ones by whom time is measured. But now someone's coming on the scene who will upend time. All of our time will be measured by this one in the future. But here it is against the background of Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, and other characters like that. And now the son of David is arriving. Yeah, and that, that fits with the, the overall thrust of Luke. One of the, one of the paradigms we've used over the years, uh, learned it from Jim Jordan as I learned those things. Uh, the, the Gospels are written in a, there's a sequence in the Gospels, uh, and they match up with different, different stages of Israel's history. You can match them up with different, faces of the cherubim. There's a logic to the way the Gospels are arranged. 
And Luke's gospel puts Jesus' birth here in the in this imperial context. And of course, if you put, especially if you put Luke and Acts together as they're supposed to be, it's one two. It's a single two volume work, and the whole trajectory of the work is to take you from uh, Jerusalem, um, the temple at the beginning of Luke, out to the uttermost parts of the earth to the capital city of Rome. So you have this imperial context for the whole story that fits with the. That's the the stage of history that Luke is linking to is Israel scattering out among the nations at, at the time of the exile uh, and the uh, what we we have learned to call again from Jim Jordan the ecumenical period of Israel's history. Israel is scattered out in the Oikumene, Oikumene uh, and uh, in the series of imperial structures. The other thing I think is important, as Alistair was pointing out, there's, there's this contrast between the, the references to Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man on earth at the time, his agent, Quirinius, and other agents are obviously implied by the, the census that's being taken. Uh, so you have this the imperial structure of Rome, and then you have the king who's being born in uh, the city of Bethlehem. Uh, and as Alistair said, by a, an unknown woman in a forgotten place. And I think that's this is one near fulfillment of the kind of reversal that uh, Mary already sang about within the gospel. Uh, the uh, the Magnificat is about the casting down of the strong and the and the uh, elevated and the uh, and the uh, and the uh, elevation of the humble and the poor. And Jesus' birth itself is a sign that that's beginning to happen because uh, this is where the King is going to be born, the one who's going to mark history, as Alistair said, in ways that uh, that even Caesar doesn't mark it. The God fearing community and Theophilus, who is uh, the recipient of this uh, gospel, is also seeing here that Joseph and Mary were submissive to the powers that God had placed over them, to the appointed world ruler, to Caesar. Uh, they weren't part of a resistance movement of zealots. Uh, neither will Jesus be or Paul. Um, and so not only does Theophilus find out that Jesus and his parents and his relatives are faithful Jews uh, situated firmly within all the rituals and laws of uh, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, and obedient to them, but they're also good, um, good uh, submissive uh, citizens of the larger uh, government that God has set up. Uh, and I think that's important to see here as well, um, that Jesus is born to this kind of family, to these kinds of people, and will be raised by uh, these kinds of parents. Am I remembering right, Jeff, that uh, there's a reference in Acts to, I think it's in Acts, to uh, a rebellion that took place among Jews because of a census? Acts 5.37. There it is. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that just, that just uh, highlights highlights the point you were making, Jeff, that there are Jews who are resisting this kind of Roman action, and uh, Mary and Joseph are not among those zealots. Uh, and yet they're going to give birth to the, they're going to give birth to the to the king who's going to be much more effective in overthrowing the pagan empire of Rome than than the zealots are. Yeah, good point. The nature of the Annunciation of the birth to the shepherds is also noteworthy. If we look back to the book of Exodus, it's Moses keeping watch over his sheep. The angel of the Lord appears to him, and it's at that point that he is told that he will lead Israel out of Egypt. 
And then he's told, and this will be a sign to you that it is I who sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall worship God on this mountain. And there's a very similar sort of statement given to the shepherds here. This will be a sign to you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And I think we're supposed to see something of the story of the Exodus in the background here. This is the one who will lead a greater Exodus. And just as there's a symmetry between the first appearance at Mount Sinai and the later um, events at Sinai, I think there's a connection between what we see here and what we see at the end of Christ's life, where there's a sign of an empty tomb and not swaddling clothes, but linen garments that the body was wrapped in. They've been put to one side. And again, it's a message to shepherds. There's angels and there's the similar sort of response. So after the events of the resurrection, they worshipped him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. And here the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So I think symmetries both with the story of the Exodus and with the later events of Christ's life help us to see the royal and um, exodus connotations of this appearance to the shepherds. It's not just a random event. It's not just a random choice of particular figures to deliver the message to. Why do you think that, uh, why do you think that shepherds are uh, highlighted here in this gospel? Um, we don't have that in the other two gospels, other three gospels, but shepherds out in the field, uh, why do they get this initial uh, announcement? Yeah, Jeff, you, you, I was going to ask that question to you. <laughs> <laughs> I would suggest that it goes back to the Old Testament prophecies, that David is seen as the shepherd of the people. And here are the shepherds being told of the birth of someone in the city of David. And the pro- great prophecy of that is in Micah 5, of course, um, and the one who's going to feed his, stand up and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord. Um, the one from the little, one of the little cl- clans of Judah, but yet the one who's going to rule in Israel is going to come forth from Bethlehem of Ephrath. Um, and then also in Ezekiel, I think it's 34, where it talks about setting over them one shepherd, my servant David, that he shall feed them and be their shepherd. In Matthew, you do have the shepherd language being used in the context of um, the scribes of and the people of Herod's court telling the Magi that um, the one who will shepherd Israel is going to come from Bethlehem. So I think it's that particular context. Here's one who's going to shepherd the sheep. And now the shepherds are told that one is going to come among them who is the true shepherd, the great shepherd. Yeah, it's pretty common, of course, to, to see the shepherds as representatives. They are a despised class. They're they're outcasts. They're considered unclean. Uh, that's, I mean, that's the, the way this is often taken. And so the fact that this annunciation is made first to them is a sign of the uh, another hint of the humility. But I think that I, I think Alistair is right to highlight the the Davidic side of it because I suspect even even if we want to emphasize the the humility and low status of shepherds, uh, we need to see that in this double in in, in a kind of a double perspective. And I think again of the Magnificat. They may be lowly, but they're being the annunciation is being is coming to them, so they're being elevated. And shepherding itself is a royal vocation. Uh, not only does David 
serve as a shepherd before, but he is a shepherd of the people, as, as Alistair said. So I, th- I think I'd, I'd want to see it in that double, that double link. I'd also want to, I'd also want to see, say that uh, not only is Jesus coming as the good shepherd, but he's coming in order to establish other good shepherds over his people. Uh, and part of the story of the gospel is the formation of a, of an apostolate that's going to uh, shepherd the flock of God after Jesus ascends. Right. Um, it seems here too, to me, and you guys can critique this uh, if you want, that there is here all of a sudden out in the field, a glory cloud of angelic beings. And if we remember that the glory cloud presence of God was normally associated with the tabernacle and with the temple, the fact that the glory of God is now moving out into a field among shepherds into a form, farmhouse near Bethlehem it seems to be significant. Uh, the glory of God identifying not with the official temple, but with this new temple of people like the shepherds uh, who are gathering around the um, incarnate Son of God. Things are changing. There's a new world coming. Um, and at least it, it seems to me that might be something going on here as well. Yeah. I think that fits with one of the symmetries that um, uh, Alistair is talking about the symmetries between the beginning and end of the book. And one of them is the appearance of angels, plural. Uh, when uh, I think it's the, the disciples are describing what they heard uh, from the women the women uh, didn't find Jesus' body, but they came saying that they had seen a vision of angels. Um, so you have not just individual angels as you do in the first denunciations, but you have the angel that is to the shepherds is then uh, joined by a heavenly host. Uh, I did some work on this a uh, number of years ago, preparing a, an Advent sermon. And I, there, are, there are scenes, as Jeff said, the scenes where you find the glory cloud that's full of cherub, cherubic figures. I don't know the word, word angels used in the plural in the Old Testament at all. Uh, there may be a couple of places, but this is a pretty unique thing for, you know, we know from John's visions of Revelation that in Revelation that there's a there's a host of angels praising God around the throne at all times. But now that heavenly choir is breaking in. It breaks in here in the field, as you said, Jeff. But then at the end of the book, uh, with this symmetrical uh, scene, it's women, again, matching up. Uh, with the shepherds in some fashion, uh, and they see a vision of angels, and it's at the tomb that they see a vision of angels. So the glory of cloud is appearing in very unlikely locations, uh, not in the temple, but out out in the field, and then out even in the in the place of death. And that we should find not just Joseph and um, Joseph and Marys and um, angels and these other things at the end of Christ's life in his death and in his resurrection but we should also find a multitude of shepherds it seems appropriate that we should yes. see that symmetry as well that the disciples the apostles are a band of shepherds who are told the news and later on just as the shepherds here they will end up spreading the word right. around yeah a good point we kind of skim quickly over the birth itself and that i kind of set set up for that because i, I mentioned it's only in a couple of verses but uh, it has been they're crucial verses to the story and to the whole history of the world. Uh, and they, they're even, even within the Annunciation, the specifics of the birth situ- situation are, um, be, are part of a sign. This is going to be identifying marker of the Christ that he'll uh, be found with Mary, his mother, 
uh, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. That's what the angel tells the tells the shepherds. And so, in some way, those those particulars about the birth itself and about the situation of Jesus at his birth are significant of who he is. They're significant of the kind of Messiah that he's going to be. Uh, and I think just to, I'll just take one item: the fact that he's put in a manger because there's no room for the, them in the inn. We have to extrapolate from that very simple statement to figure out what is actually going on. But at, at a very kind of uh, general level, what's happening is that Jesus is being uh, born in a state of being an outcast. There's He's not received. Whatever the circumstances that led to this, the fact is he's not received and he's not welcomed into uh, a home or the inn, but he ends up uh, uh, ends up outside. And that's as a foreshadowing, that that itself is a sign of what is going to happen uh, through the life of Jesus. Of course, he comes to his own and his own do not receive him. And that's already figured by the circumstances of his birth. And that, that will happen when he begins his ministry in Luke 4 and comes to Nazareth. And um, he basically is run out of the synagogue and they're going to basically push him off a cliff. Um, that's that's pretty marginalized there. Yeah. He's also born in Bethlehem. It's the house of bread, and he's placed in a feeding trough. Um, he comes to the world not just as a shepherd, but as food, and his body will later be broken by broken like bread and given for the life of the world. Um, so I think it's a further aspect of the meaning coming out here. I'm not sure whether we should, but we could maybe think back also upon previous censuses that we've heard about in Scripture. And in Second Samuel 24, the famous census of David that he's judged for, it leads to judgment upon the house of Israel, but also leads to the establishment of the site of a new temple. And I wonder whether um, people being called back to their hometown to rebuild their house, as it were, um, is Christ in um, with his father Joseph being called back to the house of David to rebuild this house, to be the one who's finally brought to that place as food um, for the people. And also Bethlehem is a site that has significant connotations in the Old Testament, not just with David, but with characters like Ruth and Boaz, or um, with the story of Benjamin, where Benjamin is born on the way to um, Bethlehem. And Rachel dies on the route to Bethlehem and they don't don't finally reach there. But in Micah 5 and 4, there's Rachel in the background and now they finally reach Bethlehem and that's where the Messiah is to be born. So something of the deeper history of Israel, I think, is playing out here. Uh, this is the passage, is it not? Verses 4 and 5 that tell us that not only is Joseph a... Judahite of the tribe of Judah, uh, but also Mary, because um, Joseph is being registered with Mary, his betrothed. So both of them being mm. of the tribe of Judah. Right. And um, verse four ends with, he was of the house and family of David. So specifically uh, within that royal within the royal line. Uh, the, the other, uh, I think you're right, Alistair, that the manger is a sign of Jesus as Food and particularly Jesus' food for Israel, because the uh, you have a I think it's I know it's early in Isaiah, maybe in Isaiah one, where the Lord charges that Israel's worse than a beast that doesn't know its 
uh, its master um, doesn't know where to go seek its food, doesn't come to the manger. I don't remember exactly the phrasing, but um, there's a there's a reference to Israel not finding the food that's being offered. So the, there might be an overtone. Jesus is being offered as food, but there might be an overtone again of uh, the, his coming rejection and that many in Israel, especially the Jewish leaders, are not going to accept him as the food that the Lord is offering. Any thoughts about the swaddling clothes? Why is that a sign? I would suggest the connection with linen garments that he's wrapped in in the tomb. Uh, I imagine that the um, the manger and the the actual casket in the coffin-like a stone coffin would be very similar in appearance. And so the sign at the end is a tomb with an empty coffin and linen clothes laid behind. And here we have the original presentation of the child who's wrapped in those swaddling garments. So just as in the story of the Exodus, the initial sign is seen in the the bush not burning, but the greater sign is that they will return and Moses will worship with the Israelites on that mountain. So the sign of Christ's birth is an anticipation that will be confirmed by his resurrection. Yeah, and that, that makes me wonder, this is the first time I think that this thought has popped into my head, but um, the scene at the tomb, it has echoes of a, of a day of atonement. The clothing has been laid aside as the clothing of the high priest has been laid aside, his linen clothing during the rites of the day of atonement. There's a, angels at one at either end of the either end of the place where he's been laid, which are like the cherubim that are flanking the ark. And it makes me wonder if there's some kind of some kind of reconstructed ark being set up here in Bethlehem. The ark, among other things, contained the manna uh, that was collected and put into a jar. And Jesus is the manna that comes from heaven. He's in a he's now in a manger in a wooden, presumably wooden uh, structure, which is the the ark was gold covered wood, but it was basic. The basic structure was made of wood. Uh, it just makes me wonder if that if that um, most holy place, ark of the covenant theme is being initiated here and then being fulfilled again with the symmetries we've been talking about it's fulfilled at the resurrection in a, in a, in a different way certainly possible um <laughs> <laughs> i haven't thought about it if it just popped into your head it hasn't popped into my head at all so uh it, it also there's this verse 19 with mary treasuring up all these things pondering them in her heart uh First of all, remembering that Luke almost surely gets this account from Mary and her personal reflections after visiting her. And, but also, um, if this comes from Mary, uh, and if these are the things that she remembers or wants to highlight, uh, it's likely that she was one of the women who followed Jesus up from Galilee to the cross and then later into the tomb. And so the connection between the clothes, the strips of clothes and the linen clothes in the in the tomb, um, that's I think that's just another way of saying, hey, that that works because Mary was there. She remembers. This is something she treasured in her heart, um, and this is something that Luke records for us here. Of course, then also thirdly, she's uh, obviously I think a uh, example of the church or a, a paradigm for the church. Um, uh, treasuring these things, pondering them, thinking about their uh, meaning, exactly what we're doing here right now in this podcast. And she's not the first person to have 
um, this response of seeing some auspicious or troubling or um, unusual sign from a young child and then treasuring it in her heart. You have a very similar way that um, that Jacob is described in responding to um, the dreams of Joseph, that he keeps those sayings in his mind and he's pondering them. He's waiting to see what will become of them. I think it's interesting to contrast what's happening to Mary and what's happening to the the shepherds within the passage. She treasures these things in her heart, pondering them in her heart, spoke of them. It seems to me it's obvious she spoke of them later because I think she revealed these to Luke. She Luke knows about the things that she was doing. How would Luke know that she treasured them up in her heart unless Mary told him? But then you have, on the other hand, you have the shepherds who received the Annunciation and they go glorifying and praising God for what they've heard and seen. They go around telling everything that they have heard to everyone round about Bethlehem. So you have this kind of double response at the end of the story. Joy and thanksgiving and praise has been a constant of all of these passages. Uh, Mary sings her Magnificat. Uh, uh, Zechariah, when he receives his ability to speak, he, he sings, he prophesies in the Spirit. The shepherds hear the Annunciation and they rejoice. So joy is the great, the climax of all of these stories. Joy is the climax of the whole uh, Gospel of Luke. This is this is where the uh, Gospel of Luke ends with the apostles in the uh, temple glorifying and praising God. But I think the the double response I think is interest is interesting and important to stress. Both of those, I mean, the the expressions, exuberant expressions of joy. Yes, uh, those are part of the proper response to the Annunciation, the birth of Jesus. Uh, but there's also a, a meditative response, a musing response, as both of you have mentioned. We uh, should be merry as well as the shepherds who are taking these things, pondering them, musing on them in our hearts, meditating on what the Lord has done so that that can deepen our rejoicing and deepen our reflection, deepen our praise of God in the Christmas season. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.